You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And before our guest, Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin D. Randall joins us tonight to review two of his latest books, we need to say goodbye to a dear friend, Brad Steiger, that recently moved into the spiritual dimension. In the late 60s, I was introduced to his important work. He was a great leader and a teacher in the New Paradigm Movement, and we will miss him very much. What many of our listeners of the past 30 years do not know is that 21st Century Radio was born out of the school I founded in 1969 called the AUM Esoteric Study Center. Brad Steiger served on that board for decades, along with other new paradigm researchers such as Charles Berlitz, Christopher Byrd, Peter Tompkins, Dr. R. B. Amber, Master Master Acupuncturist, Dr. T. Galen Hieronymus, Dr. Olga Worrell, Charles Hapgood, John F. K. Robertson, and many others. In 1973, the AUM Esoteric Study Center became the first school of its kind, whose courses on the occult sciences, religious metaphysics, and the arts were granted approval by the Maryland State Department of Education. All of those board members are now welcoming Brad Steiger into the spiritual dimension. And as noted earlier, our guest both hours tonight is Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Randall, who will discuss two of his new books, Encounters in the Desert, The Case for Alien Contact at Socorro, for an hour one and part of hour two. And second hour, his book, The UFO Dossier. Boy, every time I think of that name, Dossier, I think of Casablanca. That UFO Dossier, A Hundred Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. The UFO landing at Socorro has been wrapped in controversy almost from the moment that police officer Lani Zamora watched a craft descend and land. Zamora said, excuse me, saw alien beings near the craft and a symbol on its side, but was told that he shouldn't mention either. Encounter in the desert reveals, for the first time, exactly what he saw in that aurora in 1964 and what an examination of the landing revealed to investigators. Now, Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Randall, who I'm now just going to call Dr. Randall, if it's okay with him, is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel who toured in Iraq. His master's degrees in psychology and the art of military science, as well as a doctorate in psychology. His Army and Air Force training as an intelligence officer, military policeman, and in public affairs brings unique insights into the operations and protocols of the military and its investigations into UFOs and related phenomena. He was interviewed hundreds, he has interviewed hundreds of witnesses in mysterious crashes, sightings, abduction cases, animal mutilations, and 
alien home invasions, as well as human humans working with them. Now, this is Dr. Randall's 15th appearance. Now, we don't have people on that often on 21st Century Radio, but this is his 15th appearance on 21st Century Radio, beginning in 1990. Uh, but the last time he joined us was in 2010, eight years ago. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Dr. Kevin Randall. It has been a long time. It sure, yes, it has. And what a dynamite job you did for Officer Lonnie Zamora. Uh, it was such a great injustice for all the hell that he experienced. Well, let me just interrupt here because Brad Steiger was a friend of mine. And I've done a couple of radio programs in the last few days and put a uh, sort of an obituary on my blog about him. So he was very helpful for me to me at the beginning of my, my career as a writer and things like that. And um, I had spoken to him uh, just a couple of months ago, back when I had my radio program, I had him on as a guest. And I, of course, didn't know what was going to happen, but I think I would have handled the interview a little bit differently if I'd known and where we were going to be today. So, you know, mm-hmm. Brad will be greatly missed by an awful lot of people. Yeah, he, uh, he, it was just wonderful knowing him uh, back here in 1969 and watching him develop. I have photographs from him almost as a child, <laughs> which is really strange karma. I mean, really is. Uh, along those, And I want to congratulate you. You know, one of the great things about your work is is you are such a careful researcher one of the very best so well educated and yeah uh, and uh, I, I think that that is so important at this time because there is so much bs sometimes flying around in the area of ufos i apologize if i've offended you by saying that but um, saying there's bs in the ufo field yes i'm sorry i would have used stronger language but you are absolutely <laughs> correct yes and, and it's a great hindrance a terrible hindrance, really. Yeah. Um, well, it, it seems that there's so many new age paradigm shows today, but unfortunately, most of them haven't read the books that they talk about, and that's a big problem. If you don't read, the, if I didn't read your books, why in the world would I have you on? And why would I choose you to 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 be on this program when we pay for this show? That's the reason why we think you're so important from that standpoint. That we your your voice is needed out there. Now, enough of all this good stuff. Let me talk about uh, a couple questions we have here. How did you become interested in this sighting? Well, of course, I remember it from 1964, which I hesitate to say because that tells people how old I am. Well, you're still but, only 42, aren't you? I, I, I think of myself as about 23. But 23. Oh, okay. That's a whole other <laughs> argument. All uh, right. When I was doing my radio program, on the Exxon Broadcast Network, I had on uh, two, two fellows, Ben Moss and Tony Angiola, and they had been doing some research into the Socorro sighting in Lonnie Zamora. And in the course of the interview, they had said something about there being additional witnesses um, who had called the police station prior to Lonnie Zamora going out and finding the, the landed craft in the Arroyo. And I said to him, you've, you've looked at the police blotter, and... I never got an answer. I asked him two or three times, you know, you, you saw the police blotter, and, and I, I never got a satisfactory answer to that question. And that kind of spurred my interest. So I was looking at the Project Blue Book files and going through that, and I found a document written by Captain Richard Holder, who was 
um, Army officer stationed at White Sands Missile Range. His station on the missile range, which basically is headquartered at Alamogordo, is much closer to Socorro. So when Zulmora made the call, Holder went out to investigate into Socorro with uh, an FBI agent and some other people. And this, uh, he, he produced a report that night, sometime after midnight, after having talked to Zamora and some of the other people. And it said in this report that there had been three phone calls into the police department uh, that evening about something in the sky. And so what, what Ben and Tony had told me is confirmed by something written that very night. The problem is, and the thing that annoys me immensely, is that um, the police dispatcher didn't write down anybody's name. Oh, jeez. And after, yeah. after it became apparent that Lonnie Zamora had seen the landed craft, nobody bothered trying to find them. And you had investigators from, well, you had the FBI there, you had the Army there, you had the Lorenzans there from APRO, the Aerophenomena Research Organization, you had Ray Stanford there from NICAP, you had Project Blue Book there, and you had J. Allen Hynek there. And so we have this report that three people had reported the object in the sky, and nobody bothered to try to find those, which would have been simple to do, I think, in that time frame, because they had the trajectory of the craft, they knew where it flew, so they could go to that area of the city and knock on a few doors and see what they could find. Socorro wasn't that big in 1964, and it's still not that, that big. So it wouldn't have been hard to find those people, but nobody ever bothered to do that, and I was just amazed at that. But the point really is that we have confirmation of those witnesses that they called in prior to Lonnie Zamora uh, going out and prior to anything showing up in the news media or the uh, newspapers. So clearly they weren't contaminated by those reports because they called prior to any of the events being acknowledged anywhere. Well, I was shocked that you don't have most of the names. As a matter of fact, you know, as much in the past as I've admired certain researchers like Ray Stanford, I, he didn't bother naming his sources in regards to this particular case. Uh, Ray, Ray had told me that, and I think it's in his book as well, that he had a couple of what he called audio witnesses, meaning they had heard the thing. And he was in a, a, a restaurant with a reporter, whose name escapes me at the moment. And the women were there. He was introduced to them and learned that they were audio witnesses, and he apparently took their names. But he didn't, he didn't do any further research. So when I was working on this book, I, I asked Ray, I said, well, do you, uh, do you have the names of the witnesses? And he said, well, I, they're probably dead by now because they were older ladies in 1964. And I said, yes, but we could maybe get their ad, we could maybe find somebody who's a member of the family, we could maybe learn who their neighbors were, we might be able to find somebody who was around in 1964 who heard the thing, maybe saw something else if we knew who they were. But he had, uh, and, and I can understand this, but it's because I have so many files on UFOs now, and my filing system was never that good, that I might not be able to find it. But he hadn't been able to find, uh, find the name so we could at least make an attempt to see if we could find out where they lived and uh, check with neighbors or relatives or something like that. So we're kind of lost on that. So me coming into this thing virtually a half century later um, really inhibited what I could do based on um, what was available, but I was able to research documentation. I was able to talk to, to Ray Stanford, who was there on the scene. I was able to read what the Lorenzans had written. 
I was able to look at other reports and uh, the Project Blue Book files. And then I, I learned about a fellow named Rob Mercer who um, would look at Craigslist to see if any UFO-related material showed up on Craigslist. And he said that uh, he found a, somebody was selling a box of material, and he paid $100 for it, and it came, and it had a lot of Blue Book files in it, including 200 pages for the uh, Zamora case, for the Socorro case. And he was kind enough to send me scans of the 200 pages, so I was able to look at this unofficial file. This wasn't the official file, but the unofficial file, and compare it to the, the, the massive file that the Blue Book kept officially, so I could compare what the investigators were, and learned a few more things from that that uh, helped me understand what happened in Socorro. Well, I was a bit shocked about that, too, <laughs> in regards to by, by, uh, the material which, which and, and witnesses, the additional witnesses. Most people don't believe that there were any other witnesses, as we are today, and yet you've shown that there were many and this is what had concerned me so much with the quality of Ray Stanford's uh, re- reporting in this particular area. And this was an ICAP, right? Yes, it was an ICAP. But we have to we have to remember Ray Stanford was was pretty young at the time, and not as experienced as he became later on. But and and I you know I think back of some of my early investigations and things like that, and, and questions I should have asked or, or avenues I should have pursued, and and didn't do it. Uh, so, I, you know, I can kind of understand that, and I think Ray was looking at it from, he had talked to Zamora, he had talked to the police officers who were um, members of the Socorro Police Department, he talked to the state police officers who were there. So he talked to those those people, and I think his thinking probably was that these other witnesses were not as important as the ones that he had, he had talked to there. But I, th- I think the real problem is not what Ray Stanford did or didn't do, or the Lorenzans, for that matter. And, and Coral, Coral was very tenacious in chasing down leads and things like that, so I'm a little bit surprised that she and Jim didn't do something like that. But I think that you know, what we need to, to look at is that the problem with the Samora sighting had always been, well, it's single witness. We just have this police officer, a credible source, a man who wasn't prone to... Uh, exaggeration, or a, a man who is prone to pranking, uh, telling us this this marvelous story, and you know we we can kind of dismiss as well. It was just a single witness, and now we learn well it's not just a single witness. It's a witness, and we have leads to um, well, we had we would have had leads to other witnesses had we been exploring this, you know, sometime around 1964 as opposed to 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. When I was doing doing the work on it, so uh, you know, it's just it's just one of those things. But what we can say is, it's not single witness. We know there were additional witnesses, and we have documents created on April twenty fourth and twenty fifth, you know, the date of the sighting, nineteen sixty four, uh, telling us that those witnesses were out there. They just it was just never pursued. Well, thank heavens you pursued, and we got to take our break right here on twenty first century radio with. Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Randall, Encounter in the Desert. This is Timothy Good, author of Above Top Secret, Alien Contact, and Alien Base, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Timothy Good, boy, we haven't heard from him for such a long time. Timothy, uh, if you happen to be listening, I doubt if you are, but, you know, we're giving some of your books uh, and, and 
to schools and libraries. As a matter of fact, we're actually also giving uh, Dr. Randall's books, two books, uh, to other libraries in high schools and colleges to re-educate our listeners, especially in the area dealing with, in, well, extraterrestrials or whatever you'd like to call them. Well, welcome back to 21st Century Radio with our guest, Dr. Kevin Randall. And um, you mentioned a few other witnesses. Do you have any other witnesses you'd like to mention before we move on? There was a uh, gas station operator in the area who said that a car, he thought it was from Colorado, stopped by for gas and mentioned uh, the aircraft flying off a low around there in in the coral, and it came out that he may have seen the same thing uh, in the sky before, uh, either right up, right before it landed or just after it landed. And here's another opportunity we missed. We know the gas station operator was named Opal, Opal Grinder, and his son, who was a teenager working for him, heard part of that discussion. But, I mean, these are secondhand people. They heard what somebody else said. But we, So we, we have those sorts of things. So we have a lot of that kind of of information, and and like I said, it just sort of is annoying that they didn't follow up on those leads when they when they had the opportunity. Now I know Dr. Hynek, there was another sighting in La Madera, New Mexico, the next night, similar type circumstance uh, with the Socorro sighting, and Hynek wanted to go north, uh, um, and I think it's north of uh, Santa Fe, and it's it's up around the Taos area which isn't that far in New Mexico, to talk to the witness there, but the Air Force said, no, we don't, we don't want to do that, so he had to go back to Ohio. So, I mean, here's another opportunity for uh, an expanded investigation that might provide some information or some uh, knowledge that we don't have that was passed up because it was either too much trouble or it would have cost an extra 15 or $20 or something like that. Mm. Mm. Well, that reminds me, uh, Heineck was puzzled that Zamora, the Zamora object and other objects sighted were not picked up by uh, radar, despite the area being literally infested with radar. What, what was the answer to, to the lack of radar confirmation there? I think the problem really relates to the terrain, uh, the mountainous nature of it. There's hills and valleys and mountains all o- over the place which uh, affects radar coverage. The other thing is I think our stealth technology pretty much renders that argument moot simply because um, if they're employing some kind of stealth, and you know, we don't know how they build their craft or what, what they're built of, but if they had any uh, stealth capability, that might have rendered the, the capability of the, air, the radar to see the object. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, that's right. You're right. You know, it, made, it made it very difficult for them see, to see the object on radar. Uh, Holder, I think, it was said that the radars at White Sands had all been shut down at 5 p.m. or about 40 minutes before this event took place because it was Friday night. And everybody goes home on Friday nights, and if you can get out early on Friday night, well, you and I and everybody knows who, who's had employment knows that if you can get out a few minutes early on Friday, that's a good deal. You're damn right. That's right. And, and so, uh, you know, everything, the experiments had been shut down. There weren't any rockets going to be tested. So everything had been shut down by 5 p.m. that night. So the fact that there was no radar report 
isn't quite that strange given A, it's 1964, uh, B, the, the terrain around Socorro and the, the mountainous uh, activity there, the, the mountains. I was thinking that um, in the Roswell case, you know, people talked about the, um, it not being seen on radar, but um, the radars that would have had an opportunity to see the, the object at Roswell didn't really penetrate below 10,000 feet. So if the thing was under 10,000 feet, they wouldn't see it because of uh, the terrain. And you have a similar circumstance in Socorro, not quite that extreme, but you certainly have the same sort of circumstance. So the fact that it wasn't seen on radar shouldn't have really been that worrisome to someone researching. What, what is really interesting is, is, is um, Hector Quintanilla, who was the uh, chief of Project Blue Book at the time, wanted to explain this case. If there was a case that he wanted explained, this was it. And he went to great lengths to, this, to explain it, even went to Alamogordo and White Sands, and he had orders that said he was authorized to see any of the black projects they were working on there. He had a top-secret clearance and was authorized uh, to know what was going on to see if he could find anything in the inventory that would vaguely resemble what Zamora was what, what Zamora described and it was operating at that time and he couldn't do it and his final conclusion was that uh, it was an unidentified which it truly was and there was no terrestrial explanation for it he did say he thought that the explanation might reside in Zamora's head meaning simply that there might have been something that he had that he had seen and forgotten or, or seen and not thought important or not reported that would have uh, explain the whole thing, but uh, that never came up. And I know a couple of people, one of the guys talked to Zamora literally weeks before he died, and uh, Zamora was still puzzled by what he saw, but he was also very frightened by what he saw because he thought it was possibly something demonic or something that had religious connotations, and the first thing he wanted to do was talk to his priest before he really talked to anybody else about what he had seen. And I think that kind of shows us that Zamora wasn't akin to a hoax. He wasn't a party to a hoax. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ruled out part of that explanation. So, you know, we've got all of that kind of thing working here. Yeah, you sure do. Thank, for mention, thank you for mentioning those things. What, what did the beings that Lonnie Zamora saw look like? Interestingly, I think it was the FBI guy that said, maybe you shouldn't mention them. Not because he was trying to suppress the information, but he was thinking of Lonnie Zamora, and if you talked about alien creatures, um, you're going to get ridiculed by the press and everybody else. And we know, we know, especially in today's environment, how absolutely ruthless the press can be if they don't buy something. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. If the press doesn't believe it, they're going to go after you. And, and the FBI agent was thinking of Zamora in that. He... he he said they were basically white coveralls that he saw in the distance. They were the size of um, a 10- or 12-year-old child. They were small humanoid creatures. He didn't see facial features uh, given the distance. Uh, they didn't seem to be wearing headgear. Uh, but he described them more or less as white coveralls in the distance and didn't really provide much more in the way of a description of them. But the real point is he saw these beings outside the craft and when they suddenly spotted him, they ran back around the craft. He heard banging like a uh, door being shut or a hatch being closed. And moments later, the craft took off, uh, leaving behind a residue uh, of a 
a burning bush and, and burn marks on the ground and the landing impression, landing gear impressions behind that, um, that were found uh, literally minutes after the thing took off and were protected for a number of days by rocks being put around them and that sort of thing. And then we have a lot of photographs of what the landing gear looked like. So there were landing traces left behind and there are photographs of that, which provides us with some interesting physical evidence. Compression tests that done on the site suggested that the thing weighed a couple of tons. Um, that was the, 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 what it's saying is that the landing gear impressions were not excavations. They weren't dug, but they were the, the pads of the landing gear pressed down in the soil, which gives you another dimension of uh, reality for the case, something that uh, a hoaxer might not have thought of, but would have excavated a hole to give the impression of landing gear as opposed to having something heavy enough to press down on the, on the surface of the ground. So that, and most people, when we talk about the Roswell, they believe that that's the first time we bumped into these alien creatures. Okay. And, but not necessarily at all, because this was 19... Well, Roswell was 1944. 44, I'm sorry, yeah, sorry. And, and Socorro was 1964. Yeah, sorry. I got... But there, there had been discussion of, of alien creatures prior to 1964 uh, and after 1947. We didn't really learn about the Roswell case uh, until 1978 when Jesse Marcel began to talk about it, and, and Len Streetfield interviewed him, and then Stan Friedman was involved, and then Don Schmidt and I got involved um, before we got to talking about the alien creatures. So Socorro was important because it was one of the very few cases of uh, witness reporting alien creatures or, or, or beings associated with a craft that was labeled unidentified. There actually, it turns out, I thought for a long time that was a single case. It turns out there's actually two other cases in the Project Blue Book files, which I go to with uh, go into detail about in the book of of creatures being seen uh, and the Air Force labeling the cases unidentified. So we've got a couple of other cases in the Project Blue Book files, and if they were um, the the Air Force normally when you saw an alien creature wrote it off as psychological, meaning that you were delusional in some fashion, regardless of what the evidence might say or who you might be. Uh, they that was their way of dealing with the. Um, the alien alien creatures when people reported them. So you've got that sort of thing going on as well. Yeah, going returning to what you were just saying there. By the way, I'm reading a book right now on the Missouri 2000, excuse me, Missouri 1941 alleged crash, uh, which is uh, what I got mixed up on there because it's, it's, to me, it's brand new. You you probably know about it for a long time ago, but this is the first time. I, I, I in, in one of one of the last books I did, and I don't remember whether it's Alien Mysteries uh, or um, Government UFO Files. I, I discussed that case oh. at length. So yeah, it's it's been around for a while. Well, I'm I'm writing around. I'm only on page thirty-two of it, so it's going to be a, a you know, but you know, as you note. On page ninety-nine, the Air Force thought that the people that had uh, mental had mental problems if they saw anything extraterrestrial uh, entities, and and sometimes they reported if, if the craft was on the ground that that was enough for the Air Force to reject the sighting. Since your doctorate is in psychology, what might that tell you about the sincerity of the attempt to arrive at the truth in this? You have to look at the history of Project Blue Book or the history of the Air Force investigation to really understand this thing because 
when it all began, and meaning the UFO sightings began, and the UFO dossier goes into this a little bit more, I believe the modern era didn't begin in 1947 with the Kenneth Arnold sighting, as we've been told or has been suggested, but began with the Foo Fighters in, 19, in, in the early 1940s during World War II. And there was a fellow, Colonel Howard McCoy, who investigated the Foo Fighter sightings during the Second World War. When you get to 1946, the war is over, but we have the ghost rockets in Sweden. And one of the people involved in the investigation of that is Colonel Howard McCoy. In December of 1946, McCoy is asked to form an unofficial investigation of UFOs, flying saucers, ghost rockets, which he does. The unofficial investigation morphed into the official investigation after the Arnold sighting. So in the beginning, they're puzzled. They don't know what it is. Uh, they, they didn't care about the Foo Fighters after the end of the Second World War because the war was over. Who cares? Uh, the ghost rockets worried them, but it was taking place in Scandinavia and then northern Europe. They didn't really care. But then, then we have the, the problems here in the United States, and now they're becoming very interested. So when they began, they were very excited about the whole thing, and they were doing a best, as good a job investigating as they possibly could. Eventually, it was learned that the Air Force Chief of Staff in 1948-1949 didn't care for the extraterrestrial hypothesis, didn't believe it had been, had been properly um, proven in a number of documents, and the people who had sort of supported that idea found themselves out of jobs. And it wasn't it didn't take long for the Air Force officers involved in all this to see what was going on, and if the chief of staff didn't believe it and didn't believe it that actively, then they didn't believe it either. And Project uh, Sign, which was the original project, morphed into Project Grudge, which morphed into Blue Book. And so by the time you get into the, into the Blue Book, the idea was there was no such thing. Ed Ruppel kind of changed that thinking when he was investigating in 52, but once he left, the people appointed as the chiefs of the project, all had a very negative opinion of UFOs being extraterrestrial craft and actively rejected ideas that would suggest that. They wanted the, the, the sighting solved, and that was it. And if you read the Air Force explanation or the Air Force regulations on it, what you see is they say if you have a plausible explanation for a case, release it to the public, tell the, tell the uh, public what's going on. If you don't have an explanation, say the Air Force is working on it and direct them to the office, uh, the public affairs office for an answer. So they were suppressing the information, yet actively employing the idea that there was nothing to this uh, to get people uninterested in UFOs, that, that sort of thing. So um, there's this long history of that sort of thing going on where they've been attempting to sidetrack that when you get to the Condon Committee at the end of the 1960s. Oh, boy, that committee. Oh, boy. Well, we take a pause here <laughs> every time I think of the Condon Committee. Boy. Okay, but right now, friends, we need to take a break here on 21st Century Radio with our guest, Kevin Randall. Hello, this is Joe Uzinski, author of American Conspiracy Theories, and you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Well... Let's see if we can get to, there it is, there it is, laying right over there. What, Kevin, what was the Air Force's conclusion to this particular, their case, this case? Well, as I said, uh, the chief of Project Blue Book, Project Blue Book at the time, easy for me to say, I know, was uh, Hector Quintanella, and he was, well, an Air Force officer, 
And he wanted to explain this because it had gotten so much publicity. I think Walter Cronkite even had it on his, on his television newscast uh, the, a couple of days after it happened, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was national news. Everybody was talking about this case. So he wanted to explain it because he knew if he didn't, the UFO hobbyists would uh, have a field day with them. Mm, sure would. And rarely did he get out of the office to do the field work. It was usually done by other Air Force officers. But he went to uh, Alamogordo to look around to see what they had in the way of uh, classified work going on there. He went to White Sands all of this right around the Socorro area, he wasn't able to find anything that would explain it. There was no experimental craft being tested at either White Sands or at the Holloman Air Force Base that would explain the sighting. There was a discussion at one point that it might have been the lunar lander that was being used. The description that Zamora gave was sort of like the lunar lander, and I say sort of like the lunar lander. But we find out that it wasn't active at the time in New Mexico, so that kind of rules it out. And his conclusion was the case was unidentified. He could not explain it. And he, that really bothered him because he didn't. He wanted to put a label on it. He wanted to be able to say this is what was seen, and he was unable to do so. But as I say, this is one of the cases that was labeled unidentified. Does it mean it was an alien craft? No. It just means it's unidentified and we have no terrestrial explanation. Some people take that to mean, well, if there's no terrestrial explanation, it must be something from another world. And, you know, that's sort of a, a direction you can go in your thinking. I think of it as an unidentified, and I would like to have something more before we leap to the extraterrestrial. Of but it's course. certainly a direction you can go based on the investigations that have taken place and the information and the evidence that was gathered. Absolutely. Yeah, if it's unidentified, it's unidentified. Uh, that Well, that doesn't mean very much to uh, a lot of people that have just got their noses wet in this particular field who leap at that, that right away it is. Excuse me, I shouldn't have gotten into all that. Uh, what's, <laughs> well, it happens all the time, you know. Uh, well, I, I, and that's, that's sort of one of the problems with the is, is these leaps of logic that are sometimes made that's not based on the evidence. And, and we can see it on the other side. The skeptics will grab at any uh, explanation that seems to fit the facts and run with it happily, uh, saying, well, it's explained because uh, of some nonsensical explanation. And if you look at it even remotely, you, you realize the explanation doesn't work. So we're left with an unidentified, and for some reason, the skeptical community doesn't want anything labeled unidentified. And the really true believers... On our side of the, the fence, and I probably shouldn't say our side because that labels me as one of them, meaning that I lean toward the extraterrestrial explanation. Um, but they, they say, well, if, it's not, if, if we can't identify it, then it must be an alien spacecraft. Well, it really doesn't mean that sort of thing, but um, well, know, that's, that's the direction they sometimes go. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that uh, uh, Phil Class would just jump at. Uh, you did so. You did. There are so many. There are so many wonderful things in this book we'll never get to. And and you're especially, I love the way you handle filled class. You are very fair. You give this guy his his full shot at. He'll give you five or six different possibilities, and then you review all of those different possibilities, and you get to the point. Well, that that basically sometimes he wasn't necessarily speaking well he may have been speaking with a forked tongue every now and then 
other times he wasn't necessarily, but but uh, I know the first time I met him, I I, uh, I had some just some terrible experiences with him. Well, anyway, um, well, I found with Philip. To be fair to Philip, I found when you were meeting him outside the UFO arena, he was very charming. Very oh, charming. he is very. You were right. You're right. But that, if you if you if you were in a UFO arena, he could be really really nasty, and he wasn't above making up stuff. Oh, yes. As a way of, or, or leaving out witness testimony or misinterpreting it. Yes. Um, yeah. And with the Socorro case, that's exactly what he did. He yeah. um, invented, not that, they shouldn't say invented, but there was a fellow who lived supposedly close enough that would have heard the roar of the craft when it took off. And he said nothing happened, and Philip talked about him and all the stuff he had done. But every time you looked at what class was writing about this guy, um, the story changed. And he said, you know, the guy said, well, I walked up there that night and there was nothing going on. And, and from the moment that Zamora saw the craft in the Arroyo, there was somebody on that site until late at night. Until Holder called, um, um, I think, one of his NCOs and had MPs brought out to cordon off the area that night. So Class is talking about this guy who may have well told Class this, that, well, I went up there and there was nothing to be seen. But we know, based on the testimony of the people who were there, that the site was occupied by people for hours after the event took place. So this guy's uh, story is simply untrue. Mm-hmm. Doesn't yeah. Again, doesn't mean it was an alien spacecraft, but it means that that explanation and that reason to reject it is definitely untrue. Yeah, well, if he wasn't going to jump on it, Dr. Donald Menzel uh, would get in there and... <laughs> And and uh, direct you in another direction, that kind of thing. Uh, the thing with Menzel is that he was given access to Project Blue Book's material um, that, by regulation, he probably shouldn't have had access to. Um, so he could explain away cases. But you see Menzel showing up in the Blue Book files, and you sometimes see Menzel, uh, galley proofs of Menzel's books in the file of a specific case, uh, so that you have a, a scientist saying, well, this case has been solved by this nonsensical answer. Now, do you believe the investigation uh, in regards to what we were talking about had uh, was competent? That the U.S. Air Force had a, was a competent investigation? I think there were periods of competency. But for the most part, no, I don't think it was competent. I don't think they really... They really cared. Uh, they would have a UFO officer assigned to a base, and this would be an additional duty that somebody would have if, uh, in addition to all his other duties. Uh, it usually was a second lieutenant as opposed to some senior officer, although there are cases where I know of one, one case where the UFO officer was a lieutenant colonel. So, I mean, he's fairly up, up the, uh, the hierarchy there. But I think for the most part, uh, they gave lip surface to the investigation, and, and their job was to explain sightings, period. Not investigate sightings, but to explain them. Do you think the Air Force uh, ever intimidated UFO witnesses? I don't think intimidation would be the right word there. But I think they advised them not to talk about stuff and, and maybe suggested that it was in their best interest not to talk, talk about stuff. Uh, with the Samora sighting in New Mexico, I think when Captain Holder suggested that they not really talk about what the 
symbol on the craft looked like, or uh, FBI, agent, FBI agent Burns said maybe you shouldn't mention the occupants. What they were thinking is um, more of the investigation. I think Holder's idea was if we don't release what the symbol looked like and other people said, well, we saw the craft and we saw the symbol, they could compare what those people said with what Zamora saw and eliminate the copycats, the people who are making stuff up. And I think Burns truly had Zamora's best interest at heart when he suggested you not talk about the alien creatures. So you, had, you can make a case for suppression of the information in the Zamora case, Zamora case, but I think the purpose behind that suppression was more for the benefit of the investigation in Lonnie Zamora than it was to hide evidence. There are other cases where the Air Force, or people claiming to be the Air Force, I think we should make that distinction as well, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. suggested the witnesses not talk about what they had seen. And I know that airline crews and, and uh, Air Force officers, especially those who were raided, meaning they were pilots or navigators or, or air crewmen, I should say, being raided, uh, it was it's seemed to be among them the idea, we don't want to talk about UFOs because that will be a negative influence on your career. So a lot of the stuff didn't get reported, or if it was reported, it was reported in very limited uh, cases. So I guess in that, that respect, you could say there was some sort of um, uh, underground suppression of the information and the uh, underground um, uh, suggestions of witnesses not talk about this sort of thing, intimidation. Well, we have, an, we have an overground interference right now because we're at the top of the hour. We didn't cover as much as we had hoped, but... Uh, I do want to talk about the symbol controversy. And friends, look, there are so many wonderful experiences in this book. The Kelly Hopkinson, Kentucky case of 8-21-1955. You got to read that. There are so many more important things within this book. Maybe we'll still touch on a few of these before when we go next hour. We'll get into the UFO dossier. All right. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and my executive producer and research assistant is Laura Corden. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. Now, uh, we're going to be doing a second book this hour, but first we're going to do our work on a couple more questions that we have on last hour's book. But uh, in this hour, we are going to focus on is the government hiding facts, or is it merely incompetent? Are witnesses to be believed, exposing plots, cover-ups, misleading statements, and documented connections to government intrigue, as well as hoaxes and problematic authentications, and the UFO dossier, 100 years of government secrets, conspiracies, and cover-ups, follows the facts wherever they lead, and it takes an objective look at evidence for alien life and UFOs, including government denials, misrepresentations, incompetence, and potential malfeasance, but also more benign explanations. But we're going to return just for a little while here to the first book that we talked about, The Encounter in the Desert, Case for Alien Contact in Socorro. Of course, I have always been interested in various types of alphabets and symbols. Um, what was the symbol controversy in regards to this situation? As I mentioned, Holder suggested that, that they keep the uh, symbol secret to, to rule out copycats. Uh, the symbol that uh, Zamora drew, and he drew, a, uh, drew it 
within minutes of the craft leaving on a scrap of paper, and the, the scrap of paper is in the Project Blue Book files, is what I call the umbrella symbol. It had a sort of a circular or a semicircular thing at the top, uh, an arrowhead um, moving up into the bottom of that, and then a line across the bottom. The symbol that got published in the newspapers right after that was an inverted V with three lines through it. And that is basically the controversy. Which one did Zamora really see? Well, in the Project Blue Book files, we have what the umbrella symbol signed by Zamora that he, he made right away. There's a drawing in the Project Blue Book files, and the, the drawing's in the book, of, of the craft with the symbol on it, and he signed that. The inverted V with the three lines through it has, has gotten play in the last uh, few years, and after Ray Stanford's book came out as well, that that, that was the true symbol. Interestingly, Stanford had written a um, letter to Dick Hall at the National, at, at NICAP headquarters, about the controversy that's dated May of 1964, so it's right after this happened. He said, if you see the thing with the inverted V with the three lines, that's the fake symbol, and the real symbol is the umbrella symbol with the arrowhead up into it. When he wrote his book, he reversed that. And, you know, I asked him about that, and he just he didn't understand what he was thinking. And I, I think it's pretty clear what the symbol is based on Zamora um, signing it. There was a guy named... Um, named Rick Baca. I couldn't remember his name for a minute. I wanted to say Barker. Rick Baca, who was a youngster at the time, a 14, 15-year-old kid, and his father worked for the city attorney. And Baca was a, somewhat of an artist, and he drew a copy, he drew what Zamora saw based on Zamora's descriptions, but left the symbol off. And then um, Z Zamora, talking to Baca's father, put the symbol on the craft, and the, the symbol he put on it is the, the umbrella symbol. That illustration, of course, is in the book, but the uh, April Bulletin for May of 1964, if you have access to that, or you can get to the Internet, I think it's on the Internet, you can see the illustration that, that, um, that Baca had made with the proper symbol on it. So I think the, the symbol controversy is pretty well explained, that, uh, what, what he really saw, but there's still some people who hold out for the inverted V with the three lines through it. So, you know, it's a little bit confusing. Has, has anyone else ever talked about, I thought, sometime during this alleged alien body, uh, I can't recall the names of all that right now, uh, but, but that, that, that I saw the symbol of that of, of uh, an inverted V with three lines going through it, not necessarily touching the other lines, though, um, was was that used by anybody else or discussed by anyone else except beyond this particular case? I don't think either symbol, as it represented in this case, has, has been reproduced elsewhere. Although there are things that are close to it, um, so you you know you look at the symbology, and, and we rarely see any symbology on UFO craft. And this was something on the craft. We'd rarely see or get sightings with their symbology on the craft. So that sort of thing is very, very rare, and there are some representations that are close, maybe, but mm -hmm. nothing that really is an exact duplicate of what Zamora saw. Now, there are some other symbols that have been seen on crafts or on the persons of other beings that may be extraterrestrial. Would you share those symbols with us? Uh, Jesse Marcel, Jr., his father uh, went out to investigate the Roswell crash and brought some of the material home to show to 
uh, I brought, brought some of the material home. I don't think he brought it home to show them, but he did show his family what, what they looked like. And Jesse Jr. talked about a small little I-beam thing with uh, some symbols on it. Um, and they looked more like geometric symbols and that sort of thing. One of them he described looked sort of like a um, seal balancing a ball on its nose. It's you know, kind of a, a um, rounded triangle type shape with a, with a ball on top of it. And there's something that looks sort of like some of the um, uh, images seen in, in physics. So there, there is that, um, and I, you know those those symbols. You know Jesse Jesse Marcel Jr. provided for us. Um, I'm trying to think of the ones that are legitimate. Well, the one the one that I'm uh, let's see the the serpent ah. uh, the serpent. Uh, what was it connected with on their suits? Um, well, there was there was a sighting of. Uh, a landing that may have been an abduction that took place in Ashland, Nebraska, in the mid 1960s. The police officer Herbert Shermer. Yes, saw, yes, Shermer saw saw that uh, an alien creature with a, a, a sort of a badge on it that had a serpent on it uh, on on that on that symbol. Yeah. Um, and then there was another case um, around the same time where. A similar type thing was seen, but it wasn't an exact duplicate of it. But I've always worried about the Schirmer case because an awful lot of that stuff looks like the symbology that, that was used in a really bad science fiction movie called Mars Needs Women. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. That's and, right. And, um, you watched yeah, all the good movies, didn't you? Well, yeah, somebody had to. <laughs> I love those in a way, oh. but 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 the problem the problem there is that movie was playing about the time that the Schirmer was being interviewed and put under hypnotic regression to recall what he'd seen, and I always worried about that as being an area of contamination. Mm-hmm. Uh, once once we saw the what what the the alien creature the the suits the Martians wore as opposed to the uh, suits and the things that uh, Schirmer's aliens wore. Well, well, I think we have to move on to your next book, but I, I just love so many other areas in your book. Page two, two thirty-two. I uh, wish we could talk, talk about tell us about the metallic remains evidence that was found on the landing site at Socorro and what happened to them. What a heartbreaker that was! My God, poor old Ray Stanford kind of gets gets hit hit uh, with that one too, doesn't he? Yeah, well, that, really. But but uh, also, I thought your uh, your review of the Kelly Hopkinson Kentucky case and noted the escaped monkey theory. I mean, that really got pretty wild on uh, those kind of things. But any anyway, geez, I just love this book. I had a, such such a good time with it, and we are so happy to be able to pass this book on to other colleges and universities because your publisher has been very generous and that's the thing we love to do is is to pass on books to to various institutions especially uh, educational institutions now in the time we have left we want to make sure we get to this other important work here and uh this is the ufo dossier i just love that word dossier 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, Visible Inc. Press in 2015. Okay, Kevin, why did you write this book? It's sort of a follow-on to a book I've done called Government UFO Files, in which I looked at the history of UFO investigation in the United States. 
And in the process of doing that book, I, I found all these other things that uh, other governments and other countries had done about UFOs, and it was just something that uh, was kind of a natural follow-on to that. So I looked at the United States in depth, and now I've looked at some of the other governments in, uh, in depth as well. And what struck me as I was doing this is the Australian government, uh, one, of the, one of the ministers of the Australian government or a very high-ranking governmental official had gotten a hold of a copy of Donald Kehoe's book, and it inspired him to get the Australian, the Royal Australian Air Force, to do an investigation of UFOs. Well, the first thing the Australians did was get a hold of their counterparts in the United States. And the United States says, well, you can't believe anything Kehoe says. He just makes this stuff up. He's full of crap. We don't want to believe him. And the Australian investigation kind of took on that attitude hmm. about UFOs. But the sad thing is, as we now look back on this, which took place in the Australians, I think, took place in the 1970s. Kehoe was writing in the 1950s and the 1960s. We look back on Kehoe's work. We found out that much of what he said was accurate. It was right. made, made up. That's it right. was based on his contacts in the government. It was based on what he was seeing. It was based on what friends were telling him. And he was accurate more often than not. One of the best examples of this is the Air Force and Kehoe got into a nasty fight over the level land uh, UFO landings of, of November of 1957. And the Air Force said, well, Kehoe's full of crap. There's, there's only three witnesses to this uh, thing. Kehoe said there were nine. Going back to the Project Blue Book files, I was able to d identify witnesses at 13 separate locations. Holy so, cow. So both Kehoe and the Air Force was wrong. Kehoe was closer to right. But the Air Force had that information in their files, and they just sort of, uh, yeah, there was only three witnesses that saw the craft, and that's all there really were. Um, and, and that kind of gives you the attitude of what was going on, and we're going to explain these things no matter what. So when the Australians got interested in this, and it kind of leads to another point, but when the Australians got interested in this, they contacted the United States Air Force, who kind of uh, suggested that Kehoe shouldn't be uh, seen as reliable. And so when people say to us, well, you know, there's no UFOs and there's this big conspiracy among the governments to keep the information suppressed, I'm thinking, yeah, we kind of got this here. The Australians were the unwitting dupes of the Air Force, the United States Air Force attempts of keeping this information under wraps. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, yeah, the other governments are kind of looking, or other UFO investigations of the other governments, kind of looking to the United States, which supposedly has been doing the the the... the best work in the investigation of UFOs, and it turns out, well, that's not necessarily true. Well, you're saying that, but how would you rank our country in regards to the rest of the uh, worlds around the uh, rest of the countries around the world um, uh, in respect to credibility? On the UFO question, that they shouldn't have any credibility at all simply because of the way things were handled. For example, uh, we hear about Project Blue Book, and everybody knows about Project Blue Book. Very few people know about a, another project named Moondust, which had a UFO component. I found actual documents in the Blue Book files labeled Moondust, so it proves that Moondust was, that had, a, had a UFO component. And when the, the um, Senator Jeff Bingaman from New Mexico asked the Air Force about it, their response was, that has never been a project known as Moondust. Mm -hmm, when the documents were presented that uh, I think Robert Todd found originally, the documents were presented to the Air Force. They said, yeah, uh, yeah, there was a Project Moondust, but we never used it. 
Well, we've got documents shown that moon dust actually deployed to, re- to recover uh, space debris, either of a foreign manufacturer or unknown origin. Well, foreign manufacturer clearly would have been, at the beginning, would have been Soviet, but later on, of course, Chinese or Japanese or the uh, um, European Space Union. But, but the real point is um, there's also suggestions that things were recovered that they weren't able to identify under moon dust. As I was going through the Blue Book files, and unfortunately it's not in the UFO dossier, I found something called Operation Horsefly. Horsefly? This was another investigation where they were setting up teams at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, two-man teams, and I say man given the, the timing of this, which was the 1960s, uh, to go out and investigate UFOs. So here's another investigation we have just learned about in the last uh, few months by looking through the administrative files of Project Blue Book, here's something called Horsefly. Nobody ever talked about that sort of thing. When Moondust became known to UFO, the UFO community, uh, Robert Todd learned that uh, the code name, which was Moondust, had been changed and was properly classified, and they couldn't release it to him. So we know, we know Moondust existed in the 1980s as an investigative tool to the, for the military on UFOs, after the Condon Committee and the Air Force said, yeah, we've closed down our projects. We don't investigate UFOs anymore. Well, clearly they did. Mm-hmm. And we know it went up to 1985 or 1986, and at that point the, the project was classified. We haven't learned the term. And now we learn, and, and unfortunately too late for the UFO dossier, about the uh, project that began in, what, 2005 to investigate UFO sightings and that sort of thing. So it's an ongoing project. So when you ask, do they have any credibility about what they're saying about UFOs? I have to say no. Mm-hmm. That it's clear from the information in the UFO dossier and what they did with, in their coordination with our other governments, that they, they weren't doing a legitimate investigation. They were attempting to suppress the information. There may be a legitimate reason to suppress that information, but um, I, can't, I can't imagine what it would be. Well, I can imagine right now we need to take a break, and we're going to do that. Rules and Regulations 506 of the Penal Code do not allow me to talk more than more than five hours at a time. So our guest is Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Randall. The book we're discussing now is UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrecies. This is Travis Walton, the author of Fire in the Sky and subject of the movie by the same name, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio, hosted by Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Okay, our guest is Kevin Randall, Dr. Kevin Randall, and uh, we're talking about the book UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, Visible Inc. Press, 2015. His website is kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Do we think you should buy his books? Obviously, we think you should. As a matter of fact, maybe you should buy more than just the two books. Maybe you, especially this particular book, UFO Dossier, in, in which you uh, really get an insight as to what the government's been doing with this particular information. Okay, now. Is everyone sitting up straight, no talking, and uh, we allow gum chewing from time to time, but not all the time. Are you with us, Kevin? I am here. You're not chewing gum, are you? Oh, I'm, no, I'm eating Snickers. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, all right, let's sit up straight here. Um, so we were talking about why you wrote this book and, and what's new in this book. 
I look at a lot of the uh, foreign government reports that were done, things that were done by the British government, things that were done by the French government, things that were done by the Australian government, and what, they, what their conclusions were and what they found. And oftentimes their conclusions disagreed with the United States' conclusion about the reality of, of UFOs. Mm-hmm. And the problem is because of secrecy, uh, and I don't know why so much secrecy is, is surrounds the UFO phenomenon, but there's an awful lot of it, uh, national security issues, I guess. Uh, information is hidden and information is suppressed so that we don't get a good look at it until literally decades later. And as we look at that sort of thing, we begin to see where um, the UFO investigations went. And I, I, you know, I try to bring all of that together in a coherent package so that people can understand exactly what they've been told, what is true and what is not true, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of stuff in the book that we hasn't really been talked about in other UFO books and information that wasn't available to many of those other writers when they were writing their books that has become available to me and now to other people uh, thanks to uh, the Freedom of Information Act and uh, uh, the declassification of files that have been hidden for literally decades. Well, some th- something I've never heard of in all my life, and I was glad I heard of it and read about it in your book, is in 2009, a Russian scientist, Yuri Lobin, said that a UFO had destroyed the asteroid to save the Earth from devastation from... What disaster was that? The uh, That was the, oh, the Russian... Um, it was a meteor. Russian meteor? Was it a meteor? Would have been a meteor. Um, yes, would have been a meteor. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because that that sounds fascinating. I don't know if it's true. I don't. You know, I don't know what kind of evidence there is to back that up. But that's that's pretty interesting. There's been a lot of things coming out of uh, Russia since the collapse of the Soviet government, and I know that George Knapp, among others, have taken a great long look at this sort of thing. And what we get uh, out of some of this is uh, some very good landing reports uh, and things that sort of mimic what we've seen here in the United States or seen in Western Europe and that sort of thing. And we talk about uh, some of the activities from uh, uh, our astronauts, their astronauts, uh, looking out for the United States, uh, looking out for the United States, looking out for the world. And one of the things that worries I know uh, scientists is what is known as these Earth-crossing asteroids, which, if it's large enough, it could literally devastate life on the planet, um, causing all kinds of uh, global catastrophes. If it's big enough, it could literally turn the world into an ice world and that sort of thing. And so you you have to look at that stuff in a way, way of, either diverting the asteroid or destroying it before it can cause the damage. And we've seen some of that recently with uh, that meteor that fell in, in, uh, in Russia. What, what happens is oftentimes they, they detonate in the atmosphere. Uh, Tunguska in 1908, for example, was an explosion of probably an asteroid uh, five or six miles up, and it caused widespread dev- devastation in Siberia. Had it happened over London or New York or Moscow, it would have it would have killed literally hundreds of thousands of people. So 
these sorts of things worry them. And, and we had that latest one in, the, in, the, in Russia where it uh, detonated in the air. It wasn't as large as some of those others, but it caused serious injury to people in the Soviet Union, and it caused uh, damage in, I shouldn't say Soviet Union, in Russia. But it caused some some widespread uh, uh, injuries as well. So we have to look at all of that sort of thing, and that's part of what uh, is is going on uh, around the world. Well, certainly that that um, I'm trying to think of. It was just about five, five or ten years ago that that one Russian meteorite or wrote whatever it was broke a hole through. I'm trying to think of uh, the my boss. Do you remember that? No, she doesn't either. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, but that's one of the things that floated through my mind from time to time that I wish I could remember again. Uh, there was a woman. There was a woman in Alabama, I think it was, in the early 1950s, who was actually hit by a meteor, uh, a small one. Uh, I think it was about softball size, and it came through the roof of her house. She was laying on the couch. Oh my! And and, and it hit her, bruised her, but other than that, really didn't hurt her badly. And there was another one in New York, I believe it was, where a small. Um, meteor hit the back of a car and caused damage to the car. And I think they really sold the car for like literally tens of thousands of dollars because it was struck by a meteor and they had a piece of the meteor and they could verify that it was the car that was struck by it. But I'm wondering how you, how you explain that to the insurance company. The car was sitting <laughs> in the driveway and it got hit by a meteor. Yeah, sure it did. Yeah. But... Um, the other thing you know, I, I look at in the UFO, UFO dossier is people who have been injured by UFOs. Yes. And, yes. That's, and that's something that I think um, lends itself to the reality of the phenomenon because you've got people who are manifesting actual in- injuries based on their close approach to UFOs. And I think that's you know, something that uh, is, is a, a way of understanding exactly what uh, is going on out there. Well, in regards to that, and uh, being being injured by UFOs in Brazil, I believe it was yes, it was in 1957. Uh, um, let's see, yeah, November 19, November 4th, 1957, Fort Harper, Brazil. Is that correct? It's in Brazil. It's uh, Itapu, Itapu, Itapu. I'm not sure how how you exactly pronounce. That. I don't either. Um, but this this is an interesting case that has been reported by some UFO researchers uh, without bothering to go a step further. And I have a, a good friend who lives in Brazil, and I asked him about it from the Brazilian point of view. And we can trace the story back to Dr. Elavio Fontes, who was a member of the APRO. He was their Brazilian representative who, who presented this story of two soldiers who were injured at the fort uh, when a UFO hovered overhead, burned Burned by the apparently burned by the radiation from it, and uh, Fontes uh, provided the docu- documentation for it. The researchers today think that whether they can't get much beyond um, that original story, so there's a little bit of controversy about it. But that's one of the one of the stories of, of people being interest, injured by um, by UFOs. Uh, there's other stories. There are stories of, of aircraft disappearing uh, in close proximity to UFOs, and uh, there was an Australian case, in, I think 1978, where the, the, the fellow in a light plane uh, had something going on around him, was in contact with the Flight Following Service in Australia, and the radio 
uh, his radio calls eventually ceased. There was 18 minutes of, of um, silence, and when, when I say silence on the radio, the microphone was open or the carrier wave was open, so they had 18 more minutes after he stopped making um, uh, contact or making, making uh, radio calls, and then uh, that, was, that was it. And the airplane has not been found, and nobody's exactly sure what happened to him. Like a Bermuda Triangle in the air. Well, he just he just disappeared uh, completely and totally. Phil Class attempted to convince people that he was smuggling drugs and uh, came up with a couple of other ludicrous explanations that were disproved by the uh, Australian government as they researched him. Well, so, sometimes Phil didn't care who he slandered. He just did it. Um, um, <laughs> he got away with it an awful lot, I'll tell you. Well, you know it better thing, than I do. I mean, geez, what? Yeah, the thing uh, that bothered me about Phil Class is he sometimes used his clout as the uh, editor, a senior editor at Aviation Week and Space Technology. Always used that, yeah. Um, to, to silence people. He did this to um, James McDonald, I think, very effectively. Whoa, boy, James. By suggesting to the Navy that McDonald had, had uh, illegally used his grant money to investigate UFOs when he was in Australia, and it was clear that, that I think the investigation exonerated him from it, that he didn't do it. And, and it's kind of like what I've done in the past when I've been a, in various areas of the world on military assignments. On my free time, I'd look into UFOs. Uh, and at the Harder was doing, uh, not Harder, I'm sorry, McDonald was doing the same thing, but Class's allegation in Aviation Week was enough to um, get the Navy to cancel the contract with McDonald. Mm. And and uh, unfairly, I believe. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Well, um, but uh, but there was there, was, and that and that's gone off along uh, in the UFO field way too too often. Where um, you know there's infighting amongst the uh, the lectures on UFOs. How dare you take a lecture that I I could have done when in fact you know it's on the same weekend the guy's lecturing somewhere else. He couldn't have done them both. Um, but there's all this kind of infighting, and I think it's important that we walk the narrow path in looking for the evidence and the facts that we can advance our knowledge as opposed to get involved in these little nasty disputes. Well, we got a nasty dispute coming up right now. you got to pay for the show, and we'll do that and return with our friend Dr. Kevin Randall. UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets. This is Dr. Jacques Vallée. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus, the reference in the study of the paranormal. Uh, before we get to our next question, I have to ask this question. Uh, would you please tell us about the Frank Griffin's February 9th, 2005, Owings Mills, Maryland sighting? Because that's where we're talking. Um, Page number 217. To refresh my memory? Yes. <laughs> well, that's a big book, you know. Well, uh, 217. Oh, yes, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't make it up. Yes, I see that. I see that. Uh, here was a sighting. Uh, you know, Griffin was, a, uh, I guess, a Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin. It, I get excited sometimes. Lockheed Martin, software engineer, who saw a triangular-shaped craft. And I think it's important because it seems that we've had an evolution of what the UFOs look like. We started out with flying saucers. Now we have an awful lot of stuff talking about triangular-shaped 
objects. And he's, he's, that's what he saw, basically, flying overhead. He said it was black. It was a slight gray V on the bottom of it. Um, there were no lights, so he, he knew it wasn't, wasn't an aircraft uh, because FAA regulations require the navigation lights, the red and green lights that we all are familiar with, and, of course, the, the, uh, what we call the rotating target in Vietnam, but the uh, anti-collision lights that have on, 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 on the aircraft as well. And he noticed that um, there were fighters in the area as well. So, um, you know, he, he uh, made his report of, of this triangular-shaped object. It was investigated by the... Uh, the local news media and whatnot, and uh, it's one of the one of the better sightings that we've had recently. And I, and I say that because, uh, and and Carl Flock and I used to talk about this all the time, was that we didn't seem to get the same kind of robust sightings today that we were getting in the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s. Uh, this is one of those sightings where we get a little bit more information, a little bit more detail of it. But it's basically a sighting of a triangular-shaped object seen at night passing overhead, and there's absolutely no uh, good terrestrial explanation for what he saw. Well, you know, in one section of your book, a little bit before that, uh, you note that it's been said time and time again, the only people that see a few UFOs are those who are on their tractors out there and the farms or something like that. And yet, uh, you know, like, what about Kelly Johnson? Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Kelly Johnson, an Kelly, example Kelly of Johnson a scientist? Kelly Johnson was the guy at the Skunk Works. He was, he was the genius that ran the Skunk Works for, um, uh, and I forget the name of the um, the uh, company that ran it, but, but he had a sighting himself uh, from his house looking up and saw this object. They looked at it through binoculars. They couldn't determine what it, what it was. Um, and, and by itself, not a very spectacular sighting, but the next day when he's at work, he's talking to some of the, the people he worked with, some of the pilots he worked with, and they'd been out testing an aircraft that very night. They saw the object, too, and they had, uh, had gotten near it. So you've got the guy on the ground, Kelly Johnson. I mean, this guy is a genius, and he's got members of his crew independently seeing this uh, lenticularly shaped cra- uh, craft uh, in the sky, uh, in uh, Southern California, Southern California area. Uh, so I mean, here's here's very credible people, people who are highly trained, people who are aware of what's being developed in the way of aircraft. We're not talking about guys who, well, I've, I've spent my life in aviation and I know what all the aircraft look like. These guys are designing the next generation, so they know what's on the drawing board and they know what's out there in the ex- way of experimental aircraft. And they couldn't define, couldn't identify the object themselves, either from the ground or from the uh, from the air. And it, it reminds me when when I was growing up in in Colorado, I was a, a member of sort of of the Denver UFO Society, and they had a list of people to call if there was a, a UFO sighting. And one day they actually called and said there was something over Denver that looked like you know a, a, a roundish object in the in the sky. And from their perspective, they couldn't identify it. But from where I was in Aurora, I could tell that it was uh, a weather balloon. So we were able to identify this object where the one group couldn't identify it because of the perspective, but I could identify it from the perspective I was at. And here's, this is what we have in this report where we have Kelly Johnson on the ground unable to identify the craft, but there's a, 
there's his uh, flight crew, his fellow pilots in the air closer to the object, and they can't identify it either. So you've got a very good, solid sighting of, of an un, unknown object in the sky by guys who should have known what it was. Mm-hmm. Well, we're running out of time, and uh, I've, I've got to ask you some other important questions here. Uh, I'll try not to butt in because I just waste time that way. Main question for this book is, can you explain why the rest of the world doesn't tell us what is really happening with UFOs, or do they all just follow the lead of the United States on this? Well, interesting you should bring this up, because the French had done something called the Cometa Report, which, um, and I'm not even going to try to tell you what it means, and speak it in French, but it means the Committee for In-Depth Studies. And they looked at the um, situation around the world, and their conclusion was that there's something going on, but they're not sure exactly what it was. I think the problem we're running into here is not only is um, government, some governments believing it being a, a, a matter of national security that they don't want to reveal exactly what they know for fear of what that might do to society as we understand it, but they're looking at uh, interesting sightings that they cannot explain, but it doesn't necessarily lead them to the extraterrestrial, proving that it's something extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional. And the Cometa Report, which you know, looks at sightings around the world, this is a French study, I should probably point that out, a French study, looks at the stuff around the world, and um, I go into great detail exactly what they were looking at and what they were studying, and coming to a conclusion that um, there is something going on, and this includes sightings of, of uh, you know, the, the sightings of airline pilot sightings and uh, military sightings, but also sightings of the creatures, sightings of landings, and all of that sort of thing brought, brought together in this report. So it, it provides an interesting perspective of what's going on in the rest of the world. Well, I have to ask this other question dealing with the, the downplaying of sightings. When did the policy of downplaying the sightings and offering any sort of explanation, regardless of how ridiculous it was. When did that was that set in place? Nineteen fifty three. Fifty three. How, how do you like that? I came well, up. With I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's your but, book. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's an outgrowth. It's an outgrowth of of the sightings from nineteen fifty two, and I always like to bring this up. I I saw a headline in the Cedar Rapids Gazette, which is the greatest headline I've ever seen something right out of a science fiction movie. It says, Saucer Swarm Over Capital. And what they're referring to is the Washington National Sightings, where the, the UFOs were seen over Washington, D.C., seen on radar, intercepted by fighter pilots. Um, the CIA sponsored a panel by a fellow named uh, Robinson, called the Robertson Panel, and their conclusions were that um, they were afraid that UFO sighting reports would clog the communication channel at the time that at, at that time would have been the Soviet Union, were launching some sort of attack on us, and we wouldn't be able to respond properly, and it would become a matter of national security. So they proposed that one of the things they did was educate people about the reality of UFOs, in other words, explain the sightings as quickly as they possibly could uh, to protect national security. And this is kind of the policy that developed in 1953 and uh, related into UFO Air Force Regulation 200-2, which said specifically, if you have an explanation, you are authorized to give it. If you do not, 
you cannot tell, tell the people it's merely under investigation, but their idea was to create this idea that there was nothing to UFOs and people would go off and do something else and they could continue their investigations without having to worry about people like me and people like you um, <laughs> asking them questions about what's going on. Yeah, what do we ask them for questions for? They're, they're going to tell us the truth all the time. We know that. Um, especially with this presidency, we've learned that. Now, have other countries had the same sort of UFO experiences that we have had? The only thing that I would say they may not have had would be a crash. I think, I think the idea of yeah. UFO crashes, I mean, there's, there's lists of up to three, 400 p- crashes of UFOs. And if, it's, if they're falling out of the sky like that, we're, we would know a lot more. I think they're very limited numbers, and there may be, it may be only the United States has retrieved an actual uh, wreckage of a, of, a, of a flying saucer, a UFO. But the other kinds of sightings that we talk about, the landings, the abductions, the um, uh, landing trace cases, the air, attempted air intercepts, uh, radar sightings, photographs, everything that you talk about in the, in, in the UFO, UFO field in the United States, we see in other countries. Their interpretations may be slightly different given their, their cultural uh, backgrounds and that sort of thing, but we see it as a worldwide phenomenon. It's going on everywhere. Are there UFO ho- hoaxes in the rest of the world? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and especially in today's world where, where every, every 10-year-old kid with a computer can come up with an outstanding UFO photograph or even a video footage. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of hoaxes, and, and they're becoming much more prevalent in the world today. Um, and I don't know why it's becoming much more prevalent, but it's, and maybe it's maybe it's a result of the internet. But it's, there's certainly an awful lot of that going on out there, and we have to be when we're doing research, we have to be careful we don't get caught up in those sorts of things. And I, I know, no matter who you are as an investigator or researcher, you can get fooled. Yes, and I can point yes. to everybody in the UFO field who's been fooled by somebody at some time. Not me, except for, for except yeah, for except Bob for me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Everybody else but Bob yeah, Geronimo. That's right. Yeah, well, that's fair. He's, I mean, you know, he's the walked heck? the straight and narrow like nobody else. Nope, like nobody's business. Right, something like that. <laughs> are are the number of UFO sightings in decline? Uh, yeah. As I said, I think uh, uh, um, Carl Flock and I argued about the quality of the sightings being in decline. That we don't get the same kind of robust sightings we used to. I think that uh, Peter Davenport and the MUFON people are seeing an increase in the number of sightings reported to them. I know MUFON um, has a system to uh, prioritize the investigation of the sightings so that uh, they don't waste a lot of time on things that aren't going to take them anywhere. But uh, I I think basic numbers are up, but the quality of the sightings has has declined. Well, gosh... We got about two minutes, and I really shouldn't ask you this question, but I'm going to do it anyway. What is your conclusion about the February 25th, 1942 Battle of Los Angeles, where we uh, were, were refiring at uh, Japanese planes or extraterrestrials or weather balloons? What were we doing there? It wasn't Japanese planes, because at the end of the war, we'd have found that out. 
doesn't seem it was weather balloons, because I saw an experiment on television, and I, I forget who had done it, but they had a 50 caliber machine gun, for crying out loud, yeah, yeah. And, a, and a weather balloon to see how quickly it would have deflated when it was hit by the, by the fire. Uh, the crews on the ground fired literally thousands of rounds at this thing, and it didn't knock it down. So the Battle of Los Angeles, I think, is another one of those you throw in the unknown category. We just don't know what it is. It wasn't a weather balloon. It wasn't uh, the Japanese. It uh, clearly was something else that fooled the people. could have been a psychological problem of war nerves, which I think was suggested. It could have been um, uh, some kind of natural phenomenon that, that fooled people, or it could have been something from another planet trying to figure out what the hell we were doing. Now, we know what the hell we're doing now. we got to say goodbye, unfortunately, Kevin. This has been wonderful. It's so good to talk with you. Well, it was the last time eight years, ten years ago, something like that. Jeez, a whiz. But thank you for joining us, and thank you for these two amazing books. And we're so happy we're going to be able to distribute them into other libraries and high schools and colleges. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Courtner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.